Welcome to the Women Encouraged Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Berendrecht. We are all about growing in Christ and being shaped by His Word, so I'm delighted to share these conversations with Christians who love the Lord, love His Word, and are pursuing a life of faithfulness in Him. I'm praying this episode is a blessing to you and that you'll be encouraged to apply the gospel to this topic and walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much, Kosti Hinn, for joining me at the Women Encouraged podcast. I'm so blessed to have you come and share today. Would you go ahead and introduce yourself and share a bit of your story and your testimony for us? Yes, I uh, grew up in the prosperity gospel and in what is classically called the Word of Faith movement. And so my belief system was uh, very much... Uh, in line with what you might see on TV or hear on the radio from preachers that say uh, that Jesus wants everybody to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And that was definitely my belief system. I grew up in the center of it. Our family preached it. My father was a pastor. Uh, My uncle as well, who's probably the reason why our last name is is somewhat well-known in certain circles. My uncle is Benny Hinn. And so we grew up living a very lavish lifestyle because of the theology that we propagated. And uh, God was very much like a magic genie. And if you rubbed him right with an offering or uh, speaking things that were positive or thinking things that were positive, uh, he would give you all that you want. And so I viewed God that way as sort of a cosmic banker. And his job was to give me all the things that I wanted. And my job was just to believe and then to represent his system of blessing to others And they, in turn, as well, if they gave and had faith and followed our example, could have the same. And so that is my background. Uh, It is what I was raised in. And I would add this. I knew the gospel, and I read the Bible a lot. We memorized scripture a ton growing up, but it was always gospel plus. And so, again, Jesus died for our sins and or plus giving us our best life now, and that meant lots and lots of money and a very perfect life of health and happiness. Yeah. I I don't know how many of the listeners will have heard your story or are familiar with you by the time that they listen to this, but um I I noted in our introduction to the episode that um your book was very informative, extremely helpful and just so compelling and moving. Um my husband and I listened to it together and we both just kept stopping it and and talking to each other about um, just different parts that we related to really well and understood on a personal level. And just so there's so many different things about your story that are um, understandable and relatable. One thing that I was I was very thankful for is is not like a scandalous tell all book as much as it is uh, an explanation of really the the results of living um, this kind of theology. And I'm, I'm wondering if you would just go ahead and share why you chose to write the book and, um, what you're hoping it will do for the readers. I wrote the book so that uh, people who were caught up in the movement would, uh, of course be rescued. That's one of the main reasons I wrote it is because I'm on a rescue operation. I want the gospel to go forth. Uh, another reason is that I want Christians to be equipped when it comes to this issue, it is very prevalent today. 
across evangelicalism, whether you're in Canada, the U.S., or around the world, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ are facing this issue. It is one of, if not the most prolific uh, enemy of the church right now. And so uh, I've talked to friends in South America and across in Asia and asked them, what is the main issue that you're facing, the top threat? And they'll all say the same thing. It's the prosperity gospel. It's preachers who sell the American dream. Uh, Their people are getting sucked into it. They're giving towards it. They're being exploited by it. And so uh, I wanted to write something that would help on that issue and that would give Christians tools they could use. And so, of course, story is uh, very uh, human, and story is very much a part of what we do as human beings. We tell stories. And so I wanted the story to capture a reader's attention and to take them on that journey. And then the teaching aspect in the later chapters allows people to uh, reconstruct, if you will, what is biblical theology in regards to health and wealth and healing and God's sovereignty and the Mm -hmm. true gospel. And uh, after somewhat of a deconstruction during the first part of the book. Yeah. And it does such an excellent job. I think there is a lot that I recognized. Um, well, first I heard of you through the the film American Gospel. That was that was the kind of the place where I thought, oh, I remember seeing things like this when I was a kid, like the scenes um, of of your uncle, you know, healing people or um, blessing them. And uh, I remember watching your uncle on TV and thinking that this was real and like that this was, you know, if we just called and gave money, then my parents wouldn't have financial trouble or whatever. And I remember my mom sitting me down and saying, do you understand what this means? And, um, and I think for years though, I really didn't understand exactly what the prosperity gospel is. And I'm sure there are so many other people that don't understand it. Would you define or explain that for us and, um, and share some terms that we might need to be aware of? Yes. The definition of the prosperity gospel just takes the two words. Uh, it's best to take the two words that make up uh, the phrase, which would be prosperity, which is abundance and uh, well-being and wholeness. And of course, that would encompass financial freedom, uh, having a perfect record of health and having great relationships. When you think of the idea of being prosperous, that is there. And then gospel is good news, simple. And so the prosperity gospel is the good news about health, wealth, and happiness, and that Jesus provides that. And if you just believe and have enough faith, then he'll give that to you. So uh, what that represents is a number of things that are problematic. The first would be it turns the gospel into a a more of a works-based system. In other words, you get God's favor, you get more stuff, and you get healing, apparently, if you will believe in Jesus, if you will have enough faith, if you will give money, and you will follow what you're told by anointed leaders. And uh, overall, that is the way that the system works. And so if you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel, um, but you are familiar with politics at the time, right now, whatever your political position is, um, there are major, major prosperity preachers that are in advisory positions. So now one of the kind of hot button topics, Bethany, is in the U.S., a woman named Paula White or Paula White Kane is an advisor to President Trump. Well, Paula White 
often hits the news because the news media, uh, which rarely reported on her in the past, now seems to follow her everywhere. She'll get on her TV program and say, you know, God wants you to give, you know, whatever it is, you know, $700.77 or $200.50 or whatever. She'll pick an amount and say, if you give that, God is going to bless you or he's going to get you out of debt or he's going to break the yoke of bondage on your marriage and he's going to bring that prodigal child home or he's going to bless you, whatever the thing is. Um, that is the prosperity gospel. It's the good news that Jesus will give you what you want for one low price. Hmm. That's so dangerous because, like you said, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of getting stuff. And that's it's so um, it does so much damage, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, absolutely. So does this this kind of theology, does it kind of shape shift depending on the audience? I mean, is it does it look like one sort of uh, maybe presentation to one audience and then another to to a different group of people? Do, do people who are teaching this, do they change their presentation based on who they're trying to um, get to buy into it? Yes, it absolutely shapeshifts. There are two different versions, I would say, and you could probably broaden the spectrum a lot more, but two keeps it simple, uh, for my brain at least. There are uh, two, the prosperity gospel, which would just be full-fledged, what we've described, and then another version, which I would call prosperity gospel light, or it's like the Diet Coke version. Hmm. It is maybe not a preacher driving Bentleys and living in a $5 million mansion. Maybe it's not outlandish offering demands or saying, give $700 and God will bless you. But maybe it's a typical mainstream church that is growing and it's mega and it's got all the bells and whistles and every sermon is nothing but self-help, feel good, kind of pat on the back Christianese Mm -hmm. that God doesn't want you to suffer that everything in your life should be good. And if it's not, um, maybe you should just take these five practical steps I'm going to give you. It's a lot of self-help. And that is the prosperity gospel light. And what we need to do is go back to what the New Testament commands and makes clear, and Paul made clear to Timothy, which was to preach the word. And the word of God covers a broad spectrum of issues, and it includes preaching that Uh, Again, like the New Testament church was told, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted and that there will be times of suffering and you will, not if, but when you go through trials, uh, you're to consider it all joy and that trials and hard times are going to shape your character and grow you in Christ and actually prove your salvation. That's what we should be preaching. But the prosperity gospel uh, tends to... uh, creep in, even churches that don't notice it. And so, yeah, there is a lot of shape shifting, as you put it, uh, based on the audience, based on the goal. And Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the more subtle and dangerous ways that the prosperity gospel is creeping into the mainstream church. Man, and it's so... Once you see it, I think my husband and I were saying once once we listened to your book and and we had watched American Gospel with um, some of our boys, and we just kind of it it was like it was confronting us everywhere. Everywhere we would go, we'd be like, "There it is again! There it is again!" And I think it is so unfortunate that we're not able to recognize it as easily in our in our churches. Uh, I think 
one of the things that our team, our Women Encouraged team, has talked about is how um, there's a prosperity gospel of self that is really sold to women right now, which is basically based on the fact that Jesus would never want your life to be difficult. So, you know, celebrate your messiness, um, find the easy path, whatever it takes for you, because, you know, you're the most important. And it, and it seems like one of the the things that this ultimately leads you to is a worship of self, because, you know, you're, you you're, and your highest good is what your life is all about. And um, it makes it harder, I think, for people who are buying into this idea that Jesus would never want you to be uncomfortable to find anything that is identifiable in their churches that's maybe a problem. Are there some big obstacles for us Christians when it comes to identifying and understanding what prosperity gospel is and, and being able to point it out? I mean, I think if you're not really closely paying attention to it, it can just really pass you by. Kind of like you, what you were talking about, the the kind of people in churches, maybe who their pastor isn't driving a Bentley and, and living in a mansion or whatever. Um, what, what are our obstacles for identifying this in our lives? Yeah, I think one thing would be maybe a, a counterintuitive point, but the first obstacle is is our niceness. And I'm not advocating to be rude here. We need to be gracious and kind and loving. What I'm referring to is the the way we define niceness is often people will look at a prosperity preacher and think, you know, what's the big deal? They're they're so nice and they smile really big for the camera and they donate money to the poor and they build orphanages. And what's the big deal if they drive a Ferrari and live in a multi-million dollar home? Um, or what's the big deal if my pastor or leader uh, preaches this? They're really nice. Uh, you shouldn't judge them. I think it's really important in today's culture to realize that uh, we have a very tolerant, driven culture, and niceness often uh, trumps the truth. And we need to realize while we don't need to be um, cantankerous and aggressive as Christians and, and rude, we should not sacrifice the truth. And we should be willing to help people ask big questions. We should be willing to challenge teachers who say things that are not in line with scripture. And so the first obstacle that some of us will need to get over uh, is our definition of nice often includes not pushing against something or not calling something out. And that is a very biblical thing to do. Paul says in Romans 16 uh, verses 17 and 18 that we're to mark those who are causing division with their teaching. Literally point them out and show people that's dangerous. Please stay away from it. And this is good. Run towards the truth. So there's that. The other thing would be some terms. Terms like breakthrough. Mm. Uh, terms like abundance. Terms like anointing and favor. Uh, now, you know, Bethany, you and I could throw those terms around and we could really mean breakthrough from the bondage of sin right. and an abundance of joy in your life. And um, wow, God's favor was really seen in my life when he saved me from my sin. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to use those terms properly, but what is often happening is breakthrough means, you know, financial freedom or some, some freedom from debt that I caused that apparently giving an offering is going to solve or, um, you know, abundance means more stuff or favor means that true story here. We used to 
um, find front row parking at the grocery store. And we would say, you know, that was the favor of God, favor shield, you know, the, the favor shield was around us, so to speak. Right. Uh, you know, when maybe God's favor would sometimes be to give us a parking spot further away, especially around the holidays. I don't know about you. Um, actually, I know I should not know about you. You're not allowed to talk to women about this, but I put on a few pounds during the holidays. So <laughs> let's talk about that. Um, oh, that's funny. So, you know, God's favor would would be actually to park me further away so I can I can burn a few walking back to the car. But, um, you know, we used to say front row parking was God's favor. And that's really things to watch for in these movements is uh, everything is about me. Right. The gospel, preaching, the church, it's man-centered as though every day um, God is out for my good and my definition of God's goodness is what I think is good, but the Bible teaches that God's definition of good is different. He's good despite our circumstances not being good. He's good even if things aren't because his character's nature is always good. And uh, that's humbling, but also a good reminder for us. I had a conversation with somebody recently where I said, I, I don't know how to pare down my questions for Costi Hinn because... I don't have eight questions. I had this, I said this exact same thing, I think to another guest recently where I said, I don't have eight questions. I have all the questions for you. I, there's so much related to this that is, I mean, we could go on for hours, I think, but one of the things you noted just now is what the Bible says about God's goodness and his favor. Um, And this seems like a painfully obvious question, but what is the role that Bible literacy has for us, how does this play a role in understanding how prosperity gospel theology opposes the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Wow, yeah, that is, um, sure, it should be a painfully obvious question and should be simple, shouldn't it? But it's not, and um, it should be convicting for all of us. Biblical literacy uh, plays a role in understanding how the prosperity gospel operates and opposes the true gospel because um, people so often nowadays don't know their Bible. Uh, We are in a uh, almost, it's not even, it's it's post-Christian, post-modern, it's post-everything, the world we live in today. There are so few absolutes. Uh, You hear this very often, maybe, that truth is very relative now. Um, I was speaking to a group of young people just recently uh, at a university and there was a time of Q&A and somebody said, uh, if truth is relative, then, or since truth is relative, and then they went on to ask their question. And I thought in my mind, (laughs) if that's not the perfect illustration of today's culture, I don't know what is. Since truth is relative, it's assumed that truth is relative. Well, how, how much more important could it ever be to know your Bible and to be standing on the absolute truth of God's word than in a culture that believes everything is relative and there are no absolutes. And so, yeah, your your question is a convicting one because it's so true. People in the church, uh, kind of one more soapbox rant, if you'll allow me, uh, the last about 20 or 30 years, the church has gotten very distracted by trying to appease the culture, trying to get people in the door, appeasing uh, the unchurched and trying to attract them with gimmicks and all sorts of things that are not uh, what the church is instructed instructed to do. And so while it has become very trendy to be 
uh, you know, marketing ourselves as the church for the unchurched or, um, you know, preach to preach to the lost on a Sunday. And that's great. We should preach to the lost and we should evangelize. If you look at what the Bible teaches and what proper ecclesiology is for the church, hmm. um, the church is for the church. Hmm. Pre- preaching yeah. is to equip the saints for the work of service. I do evangelize the lost, but my preaching and my approach, a Sunday morning or a gathering of saints, is just that. It's the people of God coming together. I'm not trying to entertain unbelievers. I'm trying to equip believers. And what happens is unbelievers enter in, they hear the truth, they see the community of God's people, and their hearts are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they say, I want this. This is what I've been looking for. This is what I know I've needed. And God saves them and draws them powerfully. That's what it should look like. Um, It shouldn't be that the church, you know, puts on some event or um, you know, has laser light shows and whatever in music and, and looks like a Coldplay concert. And then, you know, thousands of people show up and we think, wow, this is revival. No, right. that's just throwing an event. And so for the last 20 or 30 years, we've, we as the church, I'll include us all, have put a higher emphasis on attracting people and entertaining them rather than teaching and equipping them. And we need to get back to uh, what one kind of mentor of mine says, bolting the pulpit to the floorboards. Um, making sure that preaching happens and that we are we are literally demanding our preachers to give us the truth. Yeah. And and people are hungry in so many ways. I mean, sometimes you know how you, you don't know you're hungry until you're starving. And I think yeah. there's there's so many Christians who really struggle with why this issue matters because ultimately they're not being fed the truth. Um and and they're being damaged. So can you list some, maybe some specifics of how prosperity gospel theology actually does damage to people? Or, and, and I think one, one question maybe ties to this that I've had conversations about this where people think, well, you know, what's the big deal? You know, at least people are coming to Christ. So maybe the question I should ask in, in relationship to this is, are people coming to the real Jesus through this kind of preaching and teaching? And should we just, you know, why not just leave it alone? Like, Obviously, you know, I don't think that we should leave it alone, but, yeah. um, but, but what, how, how do you answer somebody that says, you know, why don't we just leave it alone? What's the big deal? Nobody's getting hurt. Um, yeah. how is it hurting people? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And, and, um, one I'm happy to answer. So first my conviction, and this is open as listeners assess it and, um, weigh through their own hearts. My conviction is that the Jesus of the prosperity gospel is not the Jesus of the Bible. And so uh, after growing up in it, living it, preaching it, studying it, and then getting saved out of it, truly converted, I say that with, um, with conviction. Other people may not be there, but I'm, um, you, you let me on your show, so I get to say a few things. Yes, uh, so, please do. <laughs> uh, so I think the Jesus of the prosperity gospel is not the, not the real Jesus. And so here's what's so damaging. Um, and where I say this with wet eyes through tears, I don't say this rejoicing or, you know, with some on, on some pompous, you know, war crusade against my family or anyone. The reality is, if the Jesus of the prosperity gospel doesn't match the Jesus of the Bible, that he's not a sovereign God, that uh, you, it's not about repentance and faith in him, that it's really about getting the abundant life. John 10, 10, and that's all about stuff, then we're missing the person. 
of Christ because mm-hmm. we're chasing all of the prosperity. Well, how can that damage people? Well, first of all, it gives them false hope. They, their hope is not in Christ. It's actually hope that disappoints in the end because uh, without all the stuff, they didn't really want Jesus. But if you add in all the stuff, now they want Jesus. And that is contrary to what Paul preached. He said to live as Christ, to die as gain. He said, I count all things loss uh, in in relation to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Everything was rubbish, he said, compared to Jesus. So he didn't need any more stuff. Jesus, when he told uh, the rich young ruler uh, the truth that day, when the rich young ruler came and said, hey, I keep all the commands. I'm a good guy. What do I got to do to get heaven, basically? Jesus says, oh, one more thing, one more thing. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the guy goes away sad. Why? Because Jesus was testing his heart. Uh, are you really in it for me, or are you in it for all the things that you think I'm going to give you? And so that it, that's damaging because it's false hope. I want people to have real hope. Um, another thing is it exploits the desperate and the hurting and the vulnerable in our society, the people that the church is called to protect and to care for throughout the New Testament, the commands given. Uh, James talks about true and undefiled religion in this regard. Paul instructing Timothy about it. Jesus says the poor will always be with you. Um, The poor, the orphan, the widow, the marginalized in our culture and society should be cared for by the church. Meanwhile, the prosperity gospel preachers target these people. Uh, There's nobody more desperate than a mother holding her dying child, and the doctors have said there's no more hope. Yeah the mom just wants to know, what does it take? And so a preacher says, give your best offering. If you want God to do something for you, then you do something for him. That is so damaging because the people I often talk to who have been hurt or they didn't get their miracle, they are so emotionally abused because uh, and spiritually abused because they are told, well, you just didn't have enough faith. The problem was you. Uh, Never once uh, does Jesus you know, uh, you know, not heal someone and say, well, well, get out of here. You didn't have enough faith. He healed people that had faith and came to him. Uh, he healed people who didn't have faith and didn't know who he even was, like the man in John 5 at the Pool of Bethesda. So um, very, very dangerous when we turn Jesus's healing ministry into a formula. And so I, I would appeal to all of us to realize that the Jesus of the prosperity gospel is not our Lord. He's not the true and coming King that we see in the Bible. And this issue does matter. It doesn't matter how many orphanages you build or how much money you give away. Uh, You cannot justify false teaching just because you do some philanthropy. It is exploiting and hurting people who need help. That is really powerful. And, And it's so helpful to have that laid out for us, just knowing that Um, This kind of transactional theology isn't the right kind of transaction, you know, my sin for for life in Christ. Um, And is do you hear a lot? I mean, I haven't sat under this kind of teaching, but do you hear a lot of um, teaching from these kinds of pastors and teachers that is completely just void of sin, any conversation about sin? Or is there is there conversation happening where you know you need to repent and and then God's going to give you stuff. Is that what they're hearing, or is it just that they need to be giving and then they're going to get stuff from God? Yeah, I think you're going to hear both. I want to be fair. The spectrum yeah. is broad. You're going to have okay. some that say, um, 
you know, believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And, um, you know, you'll have others that say the word repent, others who don't, they'll, they, the word repent is like the plague. They stay away from it. Um, and then there are others that literally just jump right to, you know, if you give to God, he, they, they just assume as though anyone giving to God is going to be saved and, and given all they want. So, mm. yeah, it's a broad spectrum. That's hard. Um, for Christians that want to have these kinds of conversations with their friends about why it's hurting the church, why this kind of theology is hurting individuals, uh, can you share encouragement for them? Like, how how can we have these conversations? Well, uh, I don't do what I did in the first year. Um, I, I was in what I would call cage stage. I was just going to ask, is it called the cage stage? <laughs> it is. So for those of you listening that don't know what cage stage is, cage stage is when you come into contact with uh, maybe uh, some biblical truth, the doctrines of grace, uh, some aspect of God, maybe his sovereignty or um, his goodness or some some sort of aspect of who God is. and <laughs> it turns your world upside down right. and you, you go, wow. Like, it's like looking at the Bible and saying, has that always been there? Like, where was right. that verse when, you know, well, the reason it's called cage stage is it's best that you be caged for a little while, uh, lest you say something foolish and hurt somebody. So mm-hmm. I, I was in cage stage and nobody was caging me and I charged into a family gathering I pulled my Bible open, I, I slammed it, if you will, and I opened up to 1 Timothy 3, chap, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and I begin to read off the qualifications for pastor elders. Uh. And, oh yeah, you know where this is going. <laughs> and I, I start pointing at them, and I'm saying, you're not this, you're, you're heretics, you're all false teachers, and I'm just going off. And then I said, <laughs> but... I can help you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. So now, of course, you know, Mr. Saved becomes the Savior, right? I'm going to help right. them all. So I just unload on them and and essentially just take the air out of the room. And then, you know, how noble not to worry, everyone. Uh, I can I can help solve this. Well, you know how that went. So right. I, I it was not wise. I say this now. Any advice I give, I say because I failed early on. Uh, several years back, what I came to realize is I am much more effective in reaching friends and family if I will build relational bridges with them. I'm not saying to endorse them. I'm not saying to partner with them. Uh, I'm not going to go have a state dinner tonight with my uncle and kind of let bygones be bygones. There, there's serious dangers, and false teachers should uh, not be taken lightly. But on average, our friends and family aren't false teachers. Right. They are uh, Christians who may propagate or are caught up in the deceptions of these movements. And so we want to invite them out for coffee. We want to treat them to lunch. We want to ask a lot of questions. And I had one mentor who taught me the the HMU system, which is help me understand. And mm. when I ask people, you know, help me understand why... Um, you know, you believe such and such, or, so I have a question for you. I've always thought this, but I've heard you say this. Would you help me understand um, your line of thinking? I really want to learn from you. I really want to understand your motivations and your passions and, and what you believe. Would you be willing to share that? And when we take that approach, 
I have seen it time and time again, our friends and family, those who are hurting or those who are even caught up in this stuff, they are so much more willing to talk than if we come in playing hardcore offense, they're naturally going to play defense. Right. That's a powerful idea to think about because if I look back and, and think about every person that I've ever known who, who now I can identify as being cage stage, but, um, you know, family members or whatever who, who felt like they had found the truth, that conversation that maybe went wrong would have been changed entirely by just saying, help me understand where, where you're coming from. And, and then going from there, I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to adopt their theology, but you open up the door far wider to have the conversation when you're actually showing them that you care about listening. That's a big deal. Yep. Well, that's great to hear. Thank you. Um, How about within our local churches? Are are there ways that we need to be engaging on a deeper level with one another? Um, And maybe for people who are finding out, man, I think I might be part of a church that's teaching prosperity gospel. Where do they go from there? Well, two things. One, uh, another reminder that I wrote this book so that Christians would engage one another on a deeper level. Maybe yeah. um, it sparks discussion. Maybe two longtime Christians have had questions but never been able to pin certain things, and the book becomes a point of contact for them and community. Well, on this other side of things, you know, you're a Christian. Uh, who loves the Lord and your eyes are being open to the fact that you've been in a church that's not maybe a healthy one for you. I do think the next step is to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for James 1, 5 wisdom. Uh, he mm-hmm. will give it. He promises he will. And um, you can trust that he'll do that. Ask him for wisdom. Uh, if you're married, talk to your husband, talk to your wife. Uh, if you uh, have a pastor, an elder that you trust, or you can talk to, talk with them and begin to weigh what it means to uh, be following biblical elders. I would look at the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and ask each other as a family, is this, are these the marks of our pastors and our elders? And if not, then uh, I think there is a way to leave well, if, if it does come to that. Uh, maybe you talk to your pastors uh, about things changing and maybe they're open to that. But often uh, church leaders are what they are and and have gone a direction because they believe that wholeheartedly. And so um, if that's the case, don't be combative, leave well, be gracious, be humble and uh, go your way and then begin to search out a church in your area that teaches the Bible faithfully and uh, leaves you on Sundays if you you go to the Sunday services. Uh, I know some churches meet Saturday night now and all that, but in the end, do you leave sometimes uh, like you were patted on the back and and held real tight, and other times do you leave going, ouch, Mm -hmm. that one stung, and it kind of hurt really good. I needed to hear that. I mean, that's that's the way we want to leave. Like a good gym trainer, um, nobody goes to the gym, and after workouts says, wow, uh, I'm not sore and I'm getting nothing out of this, but it sure does feel good to go hang at the gym. No, you, you leave sore and you think, wow, somebody put some weight on the bar and I've been challenged. And then you grow from that. It's the same way spiritually. 
And if you think about it from the perspective that you're being equipped from for the work that God has called you to um, when you're going to church as a believer, then it's you're not going to be equipped by somebody never giving you hard work to do or or you know something to look at a little bit deeper. You're you need to be challenged. We don't want to just have our ears tickled and. Um, yeah, it's so convicting. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. One last question that I ask every guest, Costi, is there something that the Lord's been using in your life lately to encourage you in your walk with Him? Yes, that is an easy question to answer. It would have to be my kiddos. Uh, I am so blessed by by them. The Lord uses them so often uh, as an encouragement and also a convicting mirror and you know, if you have kids that they reflect often the home environment and who we are. And so uh, we have three and a fourth on the way and the Lord uses every single one of them to uh, encourage me. I'll add to that my wife, who is an incredible encouragement to me. She is uh, able by God's grace to be at home full time uh, with our kids in this season uh, she is homeschooling and uh, pours a lot into them and into the home. And uh, it's an encouragement. I'm able to do what I do because uh, we we phrase it this way in our home. It doesn't mean that everybody has to or that this is like a broad thing to, to, to utilize. I just, um, we call the home the hut. And, um, you know, I, maybe I refer to myself as this, or maybe she does. I won't tell you, but like that. And I'm the Viking warrior, and I got to go out to to battle. I go out to fight. Yeah. And when the hut is in order, uh, the warrior can go out. But the only reason the warrior can go out to do what he does is because uh, there's a warrior woman in the home, in the hut, caring for things and taking care of things. And so, right now in the season, um, it kills me that she can't come on a trip once in a while. Um, it it is something that I miss about the early years of marriage, but she's my best friend and my teammate in ministry. And right now that means that uh, we often fight our days on two different battlefronts, but we come together each night uh, to reconvene. And so that's been an encouragement and um, date nights are our currency in our home. They're gold. Right. So right. Uh, I'm thankful for that. That's so great. That's good to hear. What a good wife you have. She is a gift. I loved hearing your guys' story as we listened to um, your book, just hearing how the Lord kept you together and just continued to grow your marriage in Him. It was such an encouragement to my husband and I. I really hope that a lot of people will pick up your book, listen to your book, whatever it takes to um, to get this in, because I think it's such a valuable topic, such a, um, a lot of information, but just presented in such a compelling story and I'm so thankful for it Costi and thank you for joining me again today thanks for having me on Bethany keep up the great work thank you 